Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We are approaching the uh, vertical descent phase two, which will vertical descent phase one. We're almost at the end of India's complex Chandrayaan-free lunar landing, a maneuver known as the 20 minutes of terror due to its extreme complexity. The altitude is being brought down from 800 meters. Even a tiny miscalculation can be fatal at this point. And we are nearing and approaching the lunar surface. India's mission is the latest attempt at the tricky business of lunar landing. Vertical velocity is now being constantly reduced. And the lander module has begun its descent towards the landing site. Recently, we've witnessed a series of failed moon landings. Russia's Luna 25 mission, Israel's Bereshit, Japan's Hakuto-R and India's precursor mission, Chandrayaan-2. They all smashed into pieces on impact, what engineers jokingly refer to as a rapid and unscheduled disassembly. But not this time. Chandrayaan-3's historic moment was the backdrop for the conversation in this episode. As we were discussing the future of lunar exploration, India became the fourth nation to successfully land on its surface and the first to reach the lunar south pole, where scientists have a hunch there's a large supply of water ice. The 23rd of August 2023 marks a new milestone in space exploration. Welcome to Euronews Tech Talks, the podcast that delves into the pressing questions shaping Europe's digital landscape. I'm your host, Euronews science correspondent Jeremy Wilkes. Today, I'm joined in conversation by two remarkable experts from the European Space Agency. ESA astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti, who made history as the first European woman to conduct a spacewalk and assume command of the International Space Station. With her, we discussed the reasons behind the growing interest in the South Pole of the Moon. And ESA's lead for life sciences, Angelique van Ombergen. During our conversation, we discussed the possibility of inducing hibernation in humans for long-duration space travel. Let's start with astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti. Here's our conversation. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So we have NASA and ESA with the Artemis missions where India has the Chandrayaan moon lander, China has the Chang'e series of missions to the moon, Russia recently tried and failed to land on the moon. 
Samantha, why is everybody going to the moon now? What's happening now? Why the special interest? Well, I think it's a combination of things. On the one hand, we've been in low Earth orbit for a while. We've uh, been operating space station now for over two decades. And I think that there is a sense that human presence in low Earth orbit, at least at the international level, is established. And uh, the conditions are here now to take that next step in a sustainable, technically and financially sustainable way. I think the fact that there is multiple international players is contributing to making this compelling at this time. I don't think it's the only driver. I think that a part of it is just that there is a natural evolution. Low Earth orbit is an established destination. We master it. And so the natural evolution is then to go back it seems like there's a lot of momentum. There seems like there's a lot of kind of competition. Do you see it like that from inside the space sector? Do you see it as real competition now between China, India, the, the US to be the ones who are going to start to build these kind of moon bases that we all imagined would happen? Well, I mean, it's not only that, right? I mean, Europe has also chosen so far not to have a capability of human transportation, even just to low Earth orbit. So, you know, in, in the last few decades, uh, I think Europe has made the choice to participate in international NASA-led exploration programs with contributions that were and still are valuable, that at a certain point in time and in history made a lot of sense because there were an opportunity for Europe to grow. You know, you have to imagine where we came from, right? You know, in the 60s and 70s, when it all started, we watched on TV. And then in the 80s and 90s, we started having some European astronauts in the Western Bloc and the Eastern Bloc flying along with the US, with the Soviets. So we started seeing Europeans in space. And then it was an important evolution to be a partner in the International Space Station and not having taxi flights, but being co-owners of that infrastructure and having the opportunity of regularly flying not only flying astronauts for long-duration missions, but have an opportunity to fly our science, our experiments. Our... And, and then to go on to Mars as well afterwards. Why do you think Europe's not there at the forefront of this? Because we've got a lot of amazing space people in Europe. We've got a great space sector as well, but we haven't actually managed to pull off a soft landing on the moon yet. We are part of the uh, lunar exploration architecture through the European service module and through our very significant contribution in terms of hardware to Gateway. However, the question now comes, do we want to continue to grow or not? Do we want to remain what you fairly have to consider a junior partner in this partnership, or do we want to grow and be able to contribute on a more equal level? Samantha, what, what do you think are the specific challenges that are different now compared to Apollo, where we were kind of proving we could do it? It's all very exciting. What are the specific challenges now moving forward? So one is the destination. The moon has a surface about similar in size to the surface of the entire African continent, right? So yes, we've been to the moon, but we probably wouldn't say we have explored Africa if we, if 12 people had been there once for, for a couple of days. So the moon is big and not every destination is equally hard. So back then it was a race. It was a race who would get there first. So they purposely made the requirements as easy to attain as possible. For example, by having equatorial landings, like landings near the equator. This time, we want to go to the lunar south pole, which is 
a lot more interesting, and we can talk about that both from a scientific point of view as well as a purely exploration point of view in terms of uh, creating a permanent presence. However, it's not quite the same. It's a lot more difficult, both from an energy perspective and a lighting perspective. You know, you've got the sun, which is always very, very low on the horizon with these very, very long shades. So landing there is a lot more challenging. Oh, we think there's water there. That's what everybody's going looking for. We think we can maybe use it to as fuel and also to drink or whatever. That That's the reason why that area is of interest, right? So this is one of the reasons, the possibility to potentially exploit the, the water and other volatiles. So the so-called in-situ resource utilization. And that's for, you know, the, the idea of having a self-sustained base there or self-sustained exploration, even the ability to potentially create fuel in the future. Also, the fact that because you're at the pole and you basically have a situation where, yes, you have some areas in the craters which are permanently in shade. They never see the sunlight. And that is why volatiles and potentially water in some form is there. But also on the top of the craters, on the rims, then you have areas that are permanently illuminated. And that is interesting in terms of being able to exploit the sun as an energy source on a, on a permanent basis. From a scientific point of view, that area is particularly interesting for the geologist community in terms of finding samples. We have a lot of samples from the equatorial regions, but no samples in that area. And so the whole scientific community, the geologists have come together over the years and tried to identify what areas would be particularly interesting for them. And they come up with destinations near the lunar south pole. We've here goals and deadlines and ambitious targets and whatever. But when do you, again, as a as an astronaut and insider to this, when do you expect that we'll see humans on the moon again? Uh, certainly before the end of this decade. That's the easy part. Uh, exactly when? I think we all realize it's not going to be 2024 as it was announced uh, for a while. So you know, it's probably going to be a few years after that. Do you have a bit of an inkling, an idea as to who that? who's going to be on that spacecraft. You're talking about names? Uh, why I think I'm asking this is not only names. I guess you're not necessarily going to give that to me. but well, I wouldn't know. I mean, it's not that I don't want to give them to you, but I absolutely wouldn't know. <laughs> oh, you were talking about nationality. Well, my assumption is that it's going to be Americans, yes. That is my assumption. And how much does it matter for the planet? Because we've had Americans on the moon. How much does it matter who goes? I think that the Artemis exploration program is set up as an international cooperation, and I'm 100% sure that at some point there will be a European landing on the moon as part of that program, and not only a European, but also citizens from other countries. I, I think it would be a little bit too much to ask from the United States in terms of being open to the world community that in their first moon landing, which is only going to have two people landing, after five decades that uh, they do not have a, a crew of, of their own nationals on board. I think that would be a little bit too much to ask. Which is, again, just going to be a great show of power by the world's most powerful country. It's going to be interpreted as that. Do you think the context that we're in now is kind of different and perhaps the Americans should consider have something else with them? Or is it all kind of part of this, uh, I suppose, overall view that we have that Americans have the best space program and here they are demonstrating it yet again? Do you think there's a chance another nation might beat them to it, though? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't want to uh, get into these games too much, to be honest. I'm not super interesting. I think that everyone is doing their best. I think that uh, the Artemis program is probably best positions to pull off a landing uh, first. Uh, if it's somebody else, then it's going to be somebody else. It's not something that really 
spark with my interest too much as long as we go. <laughs> Angelique, can I bring you in on the challenges yeah. that humans going to the moon would face? If they're going to go there for a while, I suppose, right? I mean, we know that if they go to Mars, they probably have to go for a very long time. But if they go to the moon, you'd expect them to stay for a little while. What are the particular challenges compared to what we've done so far, uh, what we did in the 1960s and 70s, uh, of, of staying longer? Now, I think the first Artemis missions that we will see to the lunar surface and in the lunar vicinity are still going to be relatively short. However, they do come with their own set of challenges. Um, we do know from a lot of the ISS research that we've done and also some of the anecdotal reports we've had from the Apollo missions that even when you go for shorter periods of time, there's a lot of acute effects that happen on the human body that you need to account for. And when we consider, for example, these lunar missions, there's additional factors coming into play. For example, you have space radiation that's going to be very important. And that's also from a scientific point, something that we're very interested in because that's not something we can easily assess in low Earth orbit on the ISS. So it's not a good test bet, let's say, to understand really what happens to the biology of humans when it comes to space radiation. But also from a mental point of view, communication is going to be different. The crew is going to be more autonomous. They're going to be further away from Earth. So there's a lot of factors there that also can have an impact on the mental burden of such a mission. I think what's important to note is that we know we can have crew in space for a very long time and still have them function very well. I always find it very important to stress that because usually in these types of interviews, we always focus on you know, what happens to the body and what's going wrong. And, and of course, space is a very hostile environment for the human body. That's why we do so much research to try and understand and also to try and mitigate this for, for the crews going there. But at the same time, we already have a lot of experience in having crew for a very long period of time in, for example, microgravity. And these lunar missions now are going to be very important to really understand, okay, what happens if you add these uh, space radiation to the mix it's fascinating, really, because it seems like, the, um, as Samantha was saying earlier, that the science that we've done on the ISS is sort of taking us naturally then onto this next step of going to the moon. What do you think are the, the other big unknowns about staying on the moon for a longer period of time? Um, so the, uh, there's the radiation environment, which we know is difficult, and we know there are kind of ideas about how to work with that. Are there other particular unknowns? Yes, it's limited. It's not like we cannot have, we do have assessments and we do have certain uh, European investigations also focusing on that, but it's only going to be when we go into deep space that we will have a better understanding of that. And at the same time, for example, also when you have crew landing on the lunar surface, we're going to have partial gravity. What does that do to the human body? Is that partial gravity sufficient to uh, mitigate some of the changes we see in complete microgravity? Maybe it's sufficient to keep a certain baseline level. I mean, in terms of the skills of the astronauts to look after themselves then, yeah. Well, of course, the, the lunar surface is also a harsh environment, consider the lunar night and things like that. So again, this will have an impact both on the physiological aspects of the body, but also again, mentally. Um, we know that, of course, the moon is further away. ISS is only 400 kilometers. So there's a big difference there in the the mental perception of that. If something really happens, we do not have the opportunity to easily get crew back in a few hours of time or within a day. So there needs to be more medical autonomy in that aspect. Absolutely. You can't simulate those conditions anywhere. Samantha, I'm, I'm, I imagine you may have had conversations about this. Can you describe what a return trip to the moon in the future imagine were many generations into our Artemis and you know were taking 
astronauts from different parts of the world. What would they go through? What's the journey? What's the amount of time you go for? What would you actually do? What's the journey like? What's the landing probably going to be like? What would you do when you're there? And what would you come back? <laughs> what would you do when you come back? I mean, how's that all going to work? What do you imagine? Yeah, I think imagine, of course, is the right word because all those details, I don't think nobody knows them to that level of detail quite yet. But uh, it would be a few days to get to Gateway, which is this uh, space station that we will start very soon to build in orbit around the moon. So we have to imagine not a space station like the International Space Station, not such a big infrastructure, but a much smaller facility. So it will be a crew of four people, as you say, hopefully, uh, or, or certainly most of the time international crews that will board a spaceship called Orion. So they will have four seats in there. Orion has a service module, so all the part that is not pressurized, that is not habitable by the crew, that is called the European service module because it's provided by, uh, by ESA, by the European Space Agency. And they will launch on top of a very, very big rocket called uh, SLS. SLS launched for the first time back in November and will launch uh, most likely next year for the first time with crew on board. They will not land on the moon, but they will take a ride around the moon in Orion. And so this crew of four will launch in Orion and will uh, journey for a few days to cislunar orbit in a very specific orbit, near rectilinear hollow orbit that takes about seven days. So when you are in that orbit, it takes about seven days to fly around the moon. It's a highly elliptic orbit that comes very close to the moon on the one side and then goes out all the way to 70,000 kilometers on the apogee on the far side, on the further outside of the orbit. So Orion will dock with Gateway in some position in that orbit and uh, it will become one with this uh, gateway infrastructure before the crew arrived. Uh, a logistics module has already arrived, a big resupply ship that has already brought before the crew even started from Earth what they need, food, water, other consumables, science, equipment, gear, suits, everything will be in this uh, logistics module already docked to Gateway waiting for the crew to arrive. So they will dock to Gateway, open the hatch, uh, do whatever they need to make the station, you know, to, to move it from its automated, uncrewed state. Switch on the lights and check the fridge. <laughs> yeah, something like that, I would imagine. So, you know, as you said, we've projected ourselves very far in the future. So we have to imagine that Gateway is already completely outfitted, but maybe something failed in the meantime, you know, while it was uncrewed. It's going to be staying about uncrewed for about 11 months per year, so maybe... Something failed in that time, so the crew might go to the logistics module, get some spare parts, do some, some maintenance, some repair. Mm. And then part of that crew, you know, typically two people will get ready to transfer to uh, a landing, the human landing system. So a, a vehicle that will bring them to the moon surface and they will, uh, you know, go to the moon surface for a, a number of days, progressively longer stays. Of course, during their stay on the surface, they will do EVAs, extravehicular activities, going out, getting samples, and then they will return to Gateway and do it in the reverse way. Now, of course, if we project ourselves very much in the future, there might be, or most likely there will be additional facilities on the moon surface. There might be initially an unpressurized rover, and then later a pressurized rover with which they can go and explore further away from the landing site uh, and then eventually an actual habitat on the surface of the moon. So it depends how far we want to bring this mental experiment. 
It does sound absolutely fascinating. And I remember the former director of the European Space Agency talking about this image of a kind of a moon village where you'd have different people from and different rovers, perhaps from different space agencies collaborating together. Is that vision actually something that's still shared? Or are we going to carry on in this sort of slight spirit of relatively friendly competition that we see at the moment, you know, borrowing a cup of sugar from the Chinese, getting a bit of oxygen from the Americans or whatever, you know, do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, I I mean, those questions are really and honestly above my pay grade. (laughs) So I I try not to go there because it becomes completely speculative. But what is important, though, when we're talking about this uh, this moon village, and of course, the concept was very much focused on, on the actual surface of the moon. And that to me is that it's not the immediately next step, it's the step afterwards. And I like to focus on what comes next. And what comes next is to build gateway in orbit around the moon and to have an architecture, so a, a system of spaceship rockets, elements, landers that, you know, for cargo and for crew that safely and sustainably enables on a regular cadence missions to the surface of the moon. We are not there yet. To be 100% clear, we are not there yet. So to me, start to thinking about a moon village on the surface, it's nice, but it's still like a mental exercise. While the exercise of enabling this in terms of transportation, that is very concrete. That's what's in front of us. Now, in the United States, there's two contracts out to develop human landing systems, and they are in development. They don't exist yet. They haven't flown yet. So we have to be clear about that. And then the question is, again, where and how do we want to position ourselves in as Europeans? Of course, you have to, you know, crawl before you walk and you run. Certainly, we still have to develop a capability of human space transportation, period, even in low Earth orbit. Why is it so important to keep sending humans there to these places rather than robots and rovers, which are very clever and smart these days and don't have the same constraints that Angelique was talking about? Well, you know, it depends on what, what what game you want to play, right? I mean, it's a, it's a completely different story. I mean, the, the two things, I mean, you could say, uh, that's it. We, we never want to send humans to space ever again. It makes no sense, whatever. We don't care. Uh, and, and we want to send robots. And then you can put all your resources in just sending robots. And theoretically, who knows? You know, I, I, I don't like to put limits to my imagination. If in, in a X amount of time, probably pretty long, and with X amount of money, you could develop... Uh, robots and and artificial intelligence that can equate, I guess, the flexibility and adaptability and creativity of humans, and then you can replace humans uh, altogether. And for for some people, maybe that's the way to go. I'm interested in the human adventure. I personally think that, uh, you know, whenever we expand our capabilities, we want to go places, we want to make them part of the resources that we're able to exploit, the places where we can act as humanity. We probably eventually we're going to need humans there. And so that is, uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that we don't want to work with robots together. I mean, the robotic capabilities need to be developed in parallel and augment the human capability. But I would say the two things go hand in hand. I'm guessing that you would be keen to go yourself as well. I would be keen to go myself, of course, but it's not what keeps me awake at night. I mean, what I really care deeply about right now is, where we want to go in Europe in terms of our autonomous capabilities, whether my name one day is on a crew or not. I mean, it would be great, but it's not what's really my passion right now.
Samantha Cristofretti had to leave our call due to professional obligations directly linked to this important endeavour of lunar exploration. Our conversation continues with scientist Angelique von Ombergen as we delve into another captivating subject. Can humans feasibly hibernate for extended space travel purposes? The essence of hibernation lies in decelerating the body's vital processes while upholding its fundamental functions. This entails the regulation of body temperature to induce a state of reduced metabolism. Put simply, you require less food. Numerous mammals such as bears, bats and hedgehogs can hibernate to endure winter and overcome food scarcity. Could this inclination to hibernate also be ingrained within our mammalian nature? Angelique, you're an expert in this concept of hibernation in space. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Why are you looking into that? What, what do we want to learn? What do we want to do? When it comes to hibernation, I know people always have this idea of either bears hibernating during winter or they have some sort of uh, sci-fi thing in mind where, you know, you have all these spots and then people go in and they freeze and, you know, like, so... To be honest, what we're looking at at ESA is something in between. So it's really looking at a mechanism called torpor, which is something that can be, at least in some mammals, we know that this can be inherently or intrinsically introduced, where basically you're going to reduce the metabolic state of, a, of an organism. So by doing so, this means you need also less water, you need less food. So basically, you can cut down the resources significantly. And from a space perspective, that, of course, is very interesting. And on top of that, we know from some of the animal research in both hibernators and non-hibernators uh, that when animals are either hibernating naturally or synthetically being brought in a state of hibernation, that on the one hand, there is some protective mechanism when it comes to muscle and bone, two of the areas or physiological systems that we know are very impacted by space flights. We know that there is some additional protection for radiation. How does that work? So we've seen that if you have mice that are being irradiated, when they are hibernating, that they have less damage afterwards. That's a very complicated mechanism that I, I have to admit I cannot go into detail because it's not within my expertise. But, you know, these types of aspects are very important because imagine we can do that to humans who would be traveling in space. That would be fantastic. Because I was thinking it was just kind of a bit of a, at the end of the day, like everything, a money-saving endeavor that you basically didn't have to feed them or water them while they were sort of asleep. So you have on the one hand the physiological advantages and on the other hand you have of course the logistical advantages that it could bring but it's very much also focused on those physiological advantages and actually from a psychological standpoint you also have the fact that imagine you have a mission to Mars and you have the let's say the route to Mars that's of course going to be long it's going to be probably boring and monotonous to a certain degree I always compare it with a 8 month trip to Spain, for example, in the car, but, you know, without being able to stop at a gas station and stretch your legs and stuff like that. So your spacecraft could be on sort of autopilot or control from the ground, and then you go into some kind of hibernated state. Yes. You know, the actual mission, of course, is already ongoing then, but your actual duty is only going to start when you land or close to landing. Also, the stress of seeing the little blue dot that includes everybody, you've, you know, who's ever lived disappearing into the distance. 
Exactly. So if you can have crew hibernating, this would also hopefully reduce some of the psychological stress. And with stress, I also mean monotony, boredom, like things that are, you know, and I think from the pandemic, we, we might have an idea on what that looks like at a greater scale. How far along are we towards attempting to try and test this out, for example, in space? Very far. <laughs> yeah, very far. So I think most of the research right now is still basic fundamental research focusing on animals in particular. So we have some activities that look at naturally hibernating mammals, squirrels and, and some mice, hamsters. And then we also have some ongoing activities that look at let's say, non-hibernators, for example, rats. So there is some interesting research, but it's really still focused on animal research. I think it will still take quite some time before we can expand this to humans. But of course, we need to start somewhere. So in the longer term, and longer term, I really mean a few decades. And you think that it's something kind of within every mammal, then this ability to hibernate? That's indeed the assumption. And the question is, how can we evoke that in species that are not naturally doing that? But we might have this imprinted capability of doing that. And if not, how can we make the environment so that maybe these people or these species can also go into hibernation? So that's why the research on the rats, again, not naturally hibernating is quite interesting. And of course, the research on bears is also quite interesting because they have a similar body size, even though they're slightly bigger than most humans. So from that perspective, it's also quite interesting to include that in the research line uh, that's ongoing. In the sci-fi films, though, everybody ends up getting frozen. Yeah, exactly. Is that completely out the window? For ESA, it is not. So the idea there is that intrinsically you reduce the metabolism and your core body temperature therefore will also reduce as a consequence of reducing the metabolism. The idea of freezing somebody or reducing their body temperature first and then as a consequence reducing their metabolism is not something that at ESA we are considering. But I do know that some other space agencies are looking into the second option but we believe the first option is more viable and sustainable in the longer term. So you, Angelique, mm -hmm. would you be prepared to put yourself forward for a trials to be frozen or hibernated? The frozen, no. The hibernation, I, I mean, of course, it depends on how they would evoke it and what you would need to do. For example, one thing that we know from bears is that they need to stock up on fats in advance. So they usually eat a lot of salmon the weeks before they go into hibernation to have uh, sufficient supply, so to say, to come through this. Yeah, and that's quite interesting. Like, do we need to then also do this for humans? How do you do it? What are the conditions, the environmental conditions that you need to have? So depending on how exactly it would look like, I, I mean, I'm a scientist myself, so I, I don't scare away from trying things um, for the sake of science. I want to zoom back out and take a couple of kind of general questions on space exploration, just kind of run those by you. But basically, in this series, we're looking at some of the economic benefits of investing in space, because although it's very inspiring and it's interesting and it's fun, we like talking about it. Mm -hmm. it we don't want to be wasting our money either. What would you say in your field are the key kind of returns that we see in terms of you know, the investment that we made into space? What are the things that we're learning about that are helping us on the ground now? Yeah, so my area is, of course, focused on life sciences mostly. So usually when we think about the benefits it brings back to Earth, there's two things. On the one hand, space is a very fascinating environment and it's a very stressful environment. So putting humans in there just from the sake of science is already a very interesting aspect to see how does the body cope, how does the body react 
And what's interesting, and that's something we do not have in a lot of clinical settings, is that you can have a very high-functioning human, you put them in a very stressful environment, and then afterwards you can test them again. So you have this before-after type of scenario. Whereas in most diseases, you see a patient or you involve them in a clinical trial when they've already developed a certain disease. Mm. So this aspect is from a basic fundamental science thing, very interesting. And it has helped us to better understand key fundamental biological phenomena, mechanisms. For example, what happens to the bone in space? What happens when there is no loading on the bones? You can test the same human being before during the stressful event and afterwards. And how do they recover from that? What happens in the body? Which other mechanisms are being spoken to, for example? Is this something that we can use, for example, for patients who are on earth struggling with osteoporosis? Is this something we can apply? Have you got a particular favorite kind of space innovation that you use every day where you think, oh, wow, this is cool. This was, a, this was invented for space, but I use it every day or every week. I think this is a question that comes, of course, a lot. So I have some of the, the, the standard ones that I can tell you. But for example, and this is not in my field, but material for fire protection. Hmm. You have GPS, of course, but that's a very typical one. Uh, you have certain material, for example, material from diapers. I have a one-year-old daughter, so I use quite a lot of diapers, but that's also something that is being developed for space originally and then originated back to it. So there's a lot of things, of course, from a medical, let's say life sciences perspective, it's um, it's a bit less, let's say, on a daily basis type of thing. And also specific applications for technology, for example, or for materials. Uh, I think that's where we see most of the translation back to earth. And yeah, for example, when again, we, we talk about medical, it's the fundamental understanding. But at the other side, you also have certain technological developments, for example, diagnostics uh, for certain diseases making everything smaller, making it at a smaller scale, something that, you know, otherwise we cannot do in space. And this can then have applications, for example, for telemedicine in more remote areas, where we develop something for space that then later we can also use for some of the more remote areas on Earth. Last question. Yeah. We know that space can be inspiring, and it has been in the past. The Apollo missions continue to inspire some of the people that, that I know who are yeah. a bit older who were there, I was born in 1972, so I wasn't able yeah. to see it. But what impact do you think the kinds of moon missions that we're seeing now and then over the, the rest of this decade, what kind of impact do you think they'll have on people's consciousness, particularly younger people like yourself, mm. how they see the world? To be honest, I think the impact is going to be gigantic. What I think is crucially important is that if you look at the Apollo missions and, of course, different time, different mindset and so on, it were mostly men, white men. And I think if we're going to see crew now going back to the moon, there's going to be different representation. And I think that representation and that visibility is going to be very important and very inspiring to a lot of people who have not seen that part or, or, you know, something like themselves, being represented in such a huge historical uh, achievement. So even as a woman, you know, we've not seen any women on the surface of the moon. So that's already for younger girls uh, to inspire them, I think is, is crucially important. Uh, people of color, I think also there, you know, like just to have, a, I think that diversity is really, really important to have that representation. And that doesn't mean we need to inspire everybody to become an, an engineer or an astronaut or a scientist even. But just to show them it is possible if that's what you would want. 
Perfect. I'm going to finish it there. Thank you very much, Angelique. Euronews Tech Talks goes beyond discussions to explore the impact of new technologies on our lives. In the upcoming episode, our space journey continues with a Q&A featuring ESA astronaut Matthias Maurer. He's closely involved in the development of the Lunar Gateway, the first planned extraterrestrial space station. If you have questions for him, feel free to send them via the Euronews and Euronews Next Instagram accounts. I'm your host, Jeremy Wilkes, and this series is written and produced by Marta Rodriguez-Martinez. The theme music is by Leo Lebrun. Sound editing is by Jean-Christophe Marco, and sound mixing is by Mathieu Duchesne. Our editor-in-chief is Ali Esan Aydin. You can listen to this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. For more information on the latest technology around, go to our Euronews Next page. And thanks for listening. 